Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the, any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so we're going to get right into it. Um, maybe some of you have read this book, but uh, I'm sure most of you have heard of the famous book by Sun Tzu, The Art of War. In The, in the Art of War, Sun Tzu, he, he wrote this. He said, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not your enemy... For every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know I, neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Over the next few weeks, those two things are precisely what I'm going to be focused on in my messages. Knowing our enemy and knowing ourselves. In our series in the beginning so far, we have uh, we've been in it for the last three weeks, and we've looked at the fact that God's, we've looked at God's design and God's purpose for humanity. We have looked at the creation of man and the creation of woman and their unique roles within God's created design. We've looked at the institution of marriage, God's intent for man and woman to come together in a one flesh union for all of life. And so after looking at those things, we've come to the end of Genesis 2, and now we are moving into Genesis 3, where everything, spoiler alert, uh, takes a negative turn very quickly. And God's good creation goes wrong as Adam and Eve rebel against God and sin mars what was perfect. And so over the next few weeks, except for next week, because Nick is going to be preaching next week, but over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at what happened in the fall of man. How did Adam and Eve go from the garden naked and unashamed, as we looked at last week, to being barred from the garden, fully clothed, filled with shame, and under the curse of death? The fall of man is important to look at because it is a case study in knowing our enemy and knowing ourselves. This morning, we're going to start by looking at our enemy, Satan. And considering what tactics did he use in the temptation of Adam and Eve so that we may understand what tactic he uses against us. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to consider what was it in Adam and Eve that caused them to give over to temptation, to give over to sin. Because 
God's Word is clear that temptation and sin is birthed from within us, from our own desires. And so what were those desires in Adam and Eve? What was happening in their heart that led them to sin? We want to look at that so that we can also understand ourselves. Because what we all have to understand is that we are in a battle. Daily, we are in a battle against our enemy, and if we don't know ourselves and know our enemy, we will succumb in every battle, as Sun Tzu says. But if we know how he works, if we understand our own weaknesses and our strengths, we will be prepared with a strong defense when he comes against us, and we will be able to conquer him with an even stronger offense. And so that's going to be our aim over the next several weeks. As I said in week one, of this series. This series is kind of just laying the groundwork, laying the foundation uh, for where we're going throughout this year, which means I'm not going to cover everything over the next few weeks. It's not going to be exhaustive, but my plan is to lay a foundation of understanding that is going to help us for a series that we're going to be into uh, in months from now, Lord willing, uh, about spiritual warfare and how to deal with that. And so let's pray this morning that the Lord would speak to us. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that it is powerful. Father, I thank you that every person who has faith in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit and power within us, that through the word, through the Holy Spirit, we can defeat our enemy Satan. And Lord, that victory is ours through Jesus Christ that you have declared it to be so, and we know that in the end, you have won, God, and so we thank you for that. And we, we come at this message this morning from a place of victory, Lord, and we are so grateful that we have that victory in Jesus Christ. We give you praise. May we learn something new this morning. May we learn something about ourselves and our enemy to better prepare us uh, for the attacks that he brings against us. We ask you to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought a good place to start in, in talking about our enemy was to start at the origin of our enemy. That's a, that's a good place to begin. And so I want to talk a little bit about the, the beginning of Satan. And Satan, like all beings other than God, is created. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so that description of what God created through Jesus implicitly includes Satan. Like all other things, he is created. Now, beyond that, there isn't much in the Bible that talks about the origin of Satan. There are a couple of verses in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, that are debated regarding whether they are referring to an earthly king or a description of Satan, which, in my mind, I think they're describing both, like a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, but for the sake of this morning and the ease of clarity, we're just going to look at two verses in the New Testament that are not debated at all. And so let's look at there for clues as to what happened in the origin of Satan. Jude, that's a little book that we rarely look at because it's so tiny, but it's a good little book. Jude 1, even though there's not more than one chapter, but Jude 1, 6. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, 
He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Peter says almost the exact same thing in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. He says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So from these two verses, we know that there was an insurrection in heaven by angels who desired more power than they had been designated by God. They were looking for a better position than what God had assigned them, and they rebelled against Him. And as a result, God cast them out of their heavenly dwelling, and they are kept in darkness in chains until the final judgment. And so those angels are now referred to as demons. Demons are fallen angels. Now, we don't know explicitly from God's Word um, how sin arises in Satan's heart, how sin arises in the angel's heart. We don't, we don't know how that rebellion came about in God's perfect creation. So that has to go unanswered. We'll figure it out when we get up to heaven. But regardless of how it happened, what we do know about Satan is that God is sovereign over him, like he is sovereign over all things. And there is clear indication in Scripture that God governs Satan's movements and he governs Satan's actions, that he has limited power, and it does not go beyond the scope that God allows him to have. Now, having said that, it, is, it does not mean that he is not a formidable adversary. It does not mean that he is incredibly powerful in relation to you and I. We cannot fight him on our own. We cannot resist him him on our own, but through the power of God, we absolutely can. What we have to understand is Satan is not an equal power to God. God is able to crush him at any point that he chooses. And that truth also leads to another conclusion, which is the fact that God has not crushed him means somehow he works into God's plans for his creation. So, having given that background, Genesis chapter 3 is the first time that we see Satan working. And it's evident that he hates God, that he hates creation, and he wants to see it destroyed. And this has been his goal from the very beginning. And so, let's look at how he tries to do that. Let's look at how Satan approaches Eve in the garden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, right there is a clue to how Satan approaches Eve and approaches us. He came to her as a serpent. He came to her as a beast of the field, as verse 1 calls it. And so, throughout this message, I'm going to just give you eight tactics Eight tactics that Satan uses against us. And so tactic number one, he comes disguised. The narrative in Genesis 3 only speaks about the physical serpent that was in the garden that approaches Eve. He talks to her. But the New Testament fills in the details for us and makes it clear that Satan is the tempter disguised as the serpent. In John 8, 44, Jesus refers to him. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So 
Jesus says Satan is a murderer from the beginning because he lies, and his lies lead to death. Uh, who here keeps cleaning products under their kitchen sink? Okay, about half of you, good number of you. Okay, so imagine this. This is warning. This is bleak, but it's a good, it's a good uh, it makes the point. Imagine an adult goes up to a child and says to that child, did your parents say you couldn't eat anything in the kitchen? And the child responds, no, they, they said I could eat anything in the fridge or the cupboards, just, just not the cupboard under the sink because it would harm me. And the adult responds, oh, it won't harm you. Your parents just want to keep the best for themselves. And that child goes and consumes the products under the sink. Who's guilty of the harm of that child? Yeah. Same thing with Satan. This is why Jesus calls him a murderer from the beginning, because his lies led to death. Revelation also alludes to Satan being the serpent. In Revelation 20, verse 2, it says, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So Satan comes into the garden. He is disguised as the serpent, and this is his first tactic. Temptation from the enemy will always come disguised. He will not come at you head on. To this point, I'm, I'm rereading the screw tape letters I don't, by C.S. Lewis. I don't know if many of you have read it. If you haven't, uh, I would say go and read it. It's amazing. It's a, it's a book that's all about screw tape, this senior demon uh, writing letters to Wormwood, this junior demon trying to teach him uh, how to attack humanity and specifically the patient uh, that he's been given, just the person they call him their patients. Uh, and in one section, this is what screw tape says to him. He says, our policy at the moment is to conceal ourselves. I do not think you'll have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, therefore he cannot believe in you. Remaining disguised, remaining hidden, is a primary tactic of the enemy. And when he comes at you, it will be similar to what happens in the garden. And he will try to make you think what he is selling you is good for you. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't want you to know that he's coming at you, so he, he'll approach you in the same way that he approaches Eve, disguised with something that looks good. I've entitled this morning's message, From the Lord God to God. And I've done that because there's this interesting shift that happens in Genesis 2 to Genesis 3 when Satan enters the picture. And I remember the first time that this was pointed out to me, it was kind of one of those like, wow, moments about Scripture. And some of you may already know this, I've talked about it before, but throughout Genesis 2, as God's Word describes the creation narrative of man and woman, God's proper name is used every time He is mentioned. 
God's proper name is Yahweh, which in English is always translated Lord, usually all in capitals in our Bibles. And this is the personal name of God that he revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. It's the covenant name of God for his people. And so every time he's mentioned in Genesis 2, which is 10 times, he's referred to as the Lord God. And this extends into the first mention of him in chapter 3. But then Satan speaks for the first time, or more accurately, the the serpent speaks under Satan's influence, and suddenly, the personal name of God ceases to be used. So we see all throughout chapter 2, the Lord God, He made this, the Lord God did this, the Lord God did that, highlighting His position of authority, His relationship with His creation and His people, and then Satan comes into Eve and says, did God? really say. There goes the personal name of God, showing, first of all, that Satan has no relationship with him, but also that he wants to get in between Adam and Eve's relationship with God. This is a significant clue regarding where Satan attacks an individual. He, bring, he, he begins by bringing into question God and His character and your relationship with Him. Satan does not attack Eve directly. He doesn't walk up to her and go, want some fruit? He never attacks directly. He sneaks in with deceit. He sneaks in with lies. That's why he's called the father of lies. And at the root of his lies, at the root of his deceit, it is always ultimately calling God's character into question. And so let's, let's paint the picture of what's happening so you can really see what's going on here. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and it is a paradise Right? Genesis 2 describes God causing every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food to spring up from the ground, along with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Genesis 2, 15 to 17 says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, what God gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is generous, and it is abundant. The two of them were placed in the garden, had a river flowing through the center of it, and it says every tree, every tree that was pleasant, every tree that was good for food was put in the garden. It was a paradise. God was with them. He was walking with them in the midst of the garden, and all he commanded was that one tree, the one tree in the middle of the garden. Don't eat of it. Everything else is yours. Absolutely everything else. Just not that one. He gave generously and he gave abundantly. And then verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than the beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Do you notice the switch that happened there? From the abundance and generosity of of God's provision to Satan's suggestion that actually what God gave was very restrictive. You see the switch? 
It went from one to everything. God said, eat of every tree except the one. And Satan takes that one restriction that God gave, and he applies it to everything. And in doing that, though it wasn't true, he started to shift Eve's perspective from the abundance of what God had given them to the one restriction that he had placed upon them. Ultimately, Satan is bringing into question God's character. And he's suggesting that God is restrictive rather than generous. And in your life and in my life, he does the exact same thing. And it takes many forms, but it's ultimately the same thing, and it brings into question God's characters. If he can get your eyes off of God's generosity, off of his abundance, and make you only see what you don't have, and start to view God as restrictive and oppressive, he has won. And it starts with whispers in your ear. Is God really good? Why is he keeping that from you then? Does he really know what's best for you? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't you know what's best for you? You have this desire, isn't it good? That's what he does. And to the degree that you give in to it is the degree to which you will damage your faith. Some have hurt their faith by listening to these lies, and others, it has killed it entirely. Here's one way that it works. I think we would all agree that life is challenging at times, has its ups and downs, right? Life can get hard sometimes in different seasons, in different situations. The weight of life can kind of knock you down. And it's in that space that, that Satan won't come at you directly, but he'll come at you with a little subtle whisper, does God know what he's doing? Why is he not giving you what you want? Why is he keeping you in this place? Why, isn't he, why is he making you go through this? And you start to slip from there if you allow yourself to be entertained by those things. And you'll start to think, maybe God isn't good. And you start to pull that string more and more. And it's a slow move. It's a slow decline. But you slip backwards bit by bit by bit. And so understand, under every attack from the enemy is ultimately an attack on God's character and your perspective of God. And he doesn't need to move quickly. He can take it slow. So, let's talk about the actual tactics he uses to get us moving in that direction, which we can already see in his first words to Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So, the, the second tactic he uses, first tactic is he disguises himself. Second tactic he uses, suggestion. He doesn't bring a direct argument against Eve. Rather, he slips in a suggestion. Did God actually say? In this, this, this suggestion, you see what he's doing? It's something he has been doing ever since. He introduces Eve to the idea that what God said should be questioned. Did he actually say that? Does he actually mean that? 
In this suggestion, he has done this ever since that day in the garden. He has done it throughout the history of Jesus' church. He opens up God's word to be subject to man's judgment. And in our culture, it is rampant. Did God actually say homosexuality is a sin? Did God actually say you have to honor your governing officials? Did God actually say not to get drunk? He suggests that that we have the right to judge God's Word. And the, the pridefulness of man buys right into it. And it's rampant when it's mixed in a culture that is basked in relativism and individualism. If he can get us debating, it is easy to keep us in disobedience because we're distracted with, well, did God actually say, instead of, yes, this is what God declared, and now I'm going to respond. Tactic number three. He shifts our focus. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? With this question, Satan deliberately took Eve's focus off the abundance of God's provision to focus on the one thing she couldn't have. I see this a lot in my house right now. I was thinking about it this week. You come into my house at any point throughout the day, there's probably 20, 30, 200 toys on the floor in the living room. And the three young ones will be in the living room playing, and one of them will grab a toy. And then suddenly, the other two realize, that is the most valuable thing I have ever seen in my life. And suddenly, the one thing they can't have is the one thing that they want. There's an abundance of toys on the floor. Pick something else. No, no, no. Ah, that's everything. He will shift our focus from the abundance that we have to the one thing that we think we should have. Tactic number four, exaggeration. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? As I was thinking about this, and it's significant uh, to how it affects us, I I felt the Lord remind me that as followers of Jesus, we are called to be prudent. And and prudent is used in the Old Testament, it's used in the New Testament, and in the, the scriptural usage of it, prudent describes someone who is subtle. Describe someone who is skillful, who is discerning, who is understanding, who is insightful. This is a characteristic that is not seen in people who work in extremes. It is a characteristic that flourishes in nuance. Being able to navigate skillfully through situations, discern subtle differences, keep insights and understanding. That doesn't happen in extremes. Satan loves to get God's people operating in extremes because that makes them incredibly ineffective, incredibly inaccurate, and completely unhelpful as I talk in extremes. 
And we can see the effects of this tactic that it has on Eve in her response to his exaggeration. And it has the same effect on us. Look at her response to him when he says, did God actually say you can't eat of any tree? He says, no, no, we may eat of the, tree, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. There's a couple of interesting things that happen here in Eve's response. First, in response to Satan's exaggeration, whether intentionally or unintentionally, Eve herself overcompensates. Satan exaggerates and Eve responds with her own exaggeration. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Well, did God say, neither shall you touch it? No, He didn't say that. Eve overcompensates, and you can suddenly see that she's latched on to the lie that Satan is suggesting that, again, God is more restrictive than what He is, because her response paints God's command as more restrictive than what He actually said. And we're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks from now, because it has to do more with what's going on inside Eve. But I want to just give an example of how the push of the enemy toward exaggeration and extremes plays out in our lives. One of the ways we see it is in demanding of people more than God demands of them. We see it in legalism, essentially removing freedom of conscience and ushering in claims that God never made. And Satan loves that. Now, we're a Baptist church. Some of you have maybe been Baptists for your lives, and, and, and the Baptists have done something in this realm that's not so great. For a long time, if you were a Baptist, you couldn't dance. That was like the utmost of evil. God never said you couldn't dance. You see David in the Old Testament dancing around like a fool in joy, right? It's an extreme that we place on the Word of God. The other way that extremes play out is by taking away power and authority of God's commands in our hearts. I hear it most in small groups. And keep an ear out for this the next time you're in small groups. We love to talk in extremes in small groups. Let me give you an example. You're talking about witnessing, and someone will say, well, am I supposed to witness to everybody? Like in every situation, am I just supposed to always be witnessing? You hear it in small groups. You absolutely do. <laughs> it's because exaggerations and extremes darken our view and understanding of God's character. And it gives us an excuse to be disobedient. Well, God can't expect me to witness to every person I come across, so I'm not going to witness to anybody. That's literally what happens. You go from one extreme to the other. Be aware of exaggeration and extremes. The enemy loves to work in that space. Now all of you are going to be judging each other in the next small group. You're going to be real careful what comes out of your mouth. Tactic number five, contradiction and denial. 
In Eve's response to Satan, she tells him, God told her and Adam not to eat of the tree or they would die. We see that in verse 3. And then Satan responds, you will not surely die. Satan is contradicting what God has explicitly said will happen. And he's contradicting him in a very specific way. Once again, it's rooted in bringing into question God's character. Through his contradiction, Satan is denying that God will hold Adam and Eve accountable. And he's bringing into question the judgment of God. He surely won't judge you. Come on. Isn't that overwhelmingly a tactic used in our world today? God is love. He's loving. He loves you. He won't judge you. I know his word says not to do that, but he's loving. Go ahead, it's fine. What's the worst that can happen? He's merciful. Yes, he is merciful. Under the circumstances that he has declared himself to be merciful. And outside of that, he will judge. But Satan loves to make us think, oh, it's not a big deal. And there is so much going on in the church today, walking away from the truth of Christ, because we've bought into that. There's no longer judgment. Everything is okay. And it's not. And he loves it, because he's having people just walking blindly into hell, thinking they're okay. What a great tactic. Tactic number six, he claims to have knowledge that he doesn't actually have. He says in verse five, he gives a reason for why God doesn't want them to eat of the fruit. He says, well, God doesn't want, sorry, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. He's claiming to know God's motivations and thoughts. He's claiming to have knowledge that he does not have. God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because then you'll be like him. That's why he won't let you. Once again, the underlying focus is an accusation against God's character, as though though he's jealous, as though he's restrictive, as though he's holding back something good from them because he's envious of them or domineering or possessive, whatever it may be. Satan's leading them down that path of thought. Tactic number seven, he presents what is evil as good. Satan says, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be opened, being like God, knowing good and evil. That sounds good. We can all agree that that sounds good. That seems appetizing. And it isn't even really an outright lie, right? What he said is kind of true. They would have their eyes open. They would know good and evil, but it wouldn't lead to good. He dangles a carrot above their head. 
so that they can't look down and see that underneath their feet, he's pulled the ground out from under them, and there is a pit that they're about to fall into. And that's what he does with every single one of us. Look here, not there. Tactic number eight, the lure of instant gratification. There's an immediacy to Satan's focus. God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. Look what you'll gain when you eat it. Just take a bite. Much of Satan's ploys are about instant gratification. And we fall for it. Whether it's eating a fruit of the garden for Eve, whether it's something else for us, Satan presents immediate results that will fulfill what you desire. And there are almost always immediate results when you give in to him. We all know this. He dangles a carrot before you. It looks good, it looks enticing, and then you take a bite of it. And what happened in the garden? There was something immediate that happened. Shame. Guilt. Covering it up. Blame. Mistrust. Deception alienation, and ultimately, death. No, they didn't die physically right away, but God's word is clear that separation from God is death. And so, yeah, there were some immediate results, but it was the complete opposite of what he offered them. Brothers and sisters, we have to be aware of these tactics that Satan uses. Unfortunately, a lot of us forget very easily that every single day we're in a battle. That every day he's roaming around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And oftentimes when he comes to you, you will have no idea it is the enemy. It will start with a whisper. It will start with a suggestion. It will start with something that looks really, really good. And if he can get you to step onto that train, it is a really, really slow progress down a very, very dark path. I'll leave you with these words from Derek Kidner. He says, In the garden, the tempter pits his assertions against the word and works of God presenting divine love as envy, service as servility, and a suicidal plunge as a leap into life. All these things I will give you. And this pattern repeats in the temptation of Jesus, and this pattern repeats in the temptation of you and I. Be wide awake to it. Be aware of it and know that through the power of the Holy Spirit in you, through the power of the word of God that we have, that you can speak truth and he will flee from your presence.
Be discerning. Be aware at all times. I want to leave you with a growth step to that end. This week, I want us all to consider the eight tactics that we just covered and determine which ones are you most easily taken by. And if you're married or you have a really good friend, ask your spouse. They'll probably know. Talk about it with them. What lies about God's character are you most easily persuaded by? And ask God to protect your heart. And ask God to protect your mind. And then with that, I also want to give you a challenge to memorize Romans 12.2. Memorize Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's your growth step this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, as I said at the beginning of this, that we come at this kind of topic from a place of victory. Whether we have the blood of Christ covering us, Father, that we have the Holy Spirit within us, and Father, I pray for each person here that you would fill them afresh with the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them discernment, Father that you would help them to know when the enemy is coming against them. God, that they would be shrewd as you call us to be shrewd. Lord, that we would hold fast to what is true, not give in even a little bit to what is not. Father, I pray for those in here who are maybe deceived in an area. Father, I pray that you would lift the veil up, that they may see the truth where Satan has been lying to them, where he's been whispering to them, where he's been questioning your character in their lives. Father, I pray that you would break off blindness in this place, that you would do a mighty work in the hearts of your people. Father, that, that you would give us a, an awareness of what is going on beyond the natural. Father, that we would understand that there is far more that's happening than what we can see, that there are powers and principalities at play, that you have given us authority through Jesus Christ to come against as they come against us. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people who speak your truth, who hold fast to it, and who are not swayed by false winds of doctrine. Who are not swayed by whispers of things that sound good that you have declared not to be. Father, I pray your protection over each heart, your protection over each mind, your protection over each soul. And I thank you that through Jesus Christ you are holding us fast. And Father, I just pray for every person in here that we would surrender ourselves to you.
that you would be Lord. That we would be obedient to your word, Father. I thank you for Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that you are infinitely greater than he who comes against us. That we are victorious in Christ. That we are more than conquerors. We praise you for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.